So with that being stated, that's what takes it apart, is the fact that the Commonwealth commented on the ability of a witness not only to just present evidence that, that helps, but that a witness is out there that well, could exonerate well, that's this man. comment on, on what a witness could or could not say. It would invite a response by you if it was made a closing argument. But I think the issue is whether there's a d distinction between improper comment on the failure to put on any evidence, which would be problematic, and the ability of the Commonwealth to poke holes in a defense that is put on by a defendant. Isn't that the difference we've got here? I, I, I disagree, Judge. Welcome to the Court of Appeals of Virginia podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ben Glass Law, a personal injury and long-term disability law firm with headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia. Listening to oral arguments is one of the best ways to both learn and stay abreast of the substantive and procedural aspects of practicing law in Virginia. By putting these public domain recordings into the form of a podcast, Ben Glass Law has made it easy for the public to access these recordings. All commentary that is not part of the actual court proceedings is that of the show sponsor. Next case on our docket this morning is William Green versus the Commonwealth. We have Mr. McCall arguing on behalf of Mr. Green and Mr. William for the Commonwealth. Good morning, Mr. McCall. Good when morning, you, Your Honors. How much time would you like to reserve for rebuttal today, if any? Judge, I'd like to reserve two minutes for rebuttal. Two minutes? All right, you can begin whenever you're ready. Thank you. again. May it please the court, Leonard McCall for the appellate, Mr. William Green. Before the court on at least seven assignments of error, the first three assignments of error in regards to a conviction or a guilty verdict in regards to matters involving robbery in this particular trial. Those particular robbery assignments of error, one would go to whether or not the court erred in saying in the finding that Mr. Green was the perpetrator in these robbery convictions by verdict of the jury. Two, whether or not Mr. Green took part in any conspiracy in this particular robbery. And in number three, whether or not there was evidence sufficient to prove that there was even, excuse me, assignment error number two was whether or not there was actual robbery proven by way of taking. And assignment error number three, whether or not there was any agreement in terms of conspiracy that involved Mr. Green in this particular robbery. Assignments of error number four were in regard to improper conduct and comments on behalf of the Commonwealth. And also assignment of error number five would go to improper questions from the Commonwealth. And also in assignment of error number six would involve- Counsel, let me interrupt you. We've read your brief and we know what the assignments of error are. You've only got 15 minutes. All right. I doubt you're going to get to all of them, so you might want to pick out whichever one you want to start with. All right. Go there. Thank you, Judge. What I'll do is I'll ask the court to reverse attention to assignment of error in regards to improper statements, improper conduct on behalf of the Commonwealth in this particular trial. Let me ask you about that because the Commonwealth, you put on evidence in this case. Correct. Your client had no obligation to do so, but elected to call witnesses in their favor. Now, 
it certainly would be improper for the Commonwealth to, to, to comment during closing argument on the failure of the defendant to call for evidence in their favor when they don't have to. But if they elect to put on evidence, why isn't it a fair game for the Commonwealth to argue why that evidence should not be believed or why that evidence is insufficient to constitute a defense, which is essentially what was going on here? In this particular matter, Judge, one, there was a objection from the defense in terms of this improper conduct, improper questions, and also there was a request for a mistrial. The court in this particular matter failed to have a factual hearing in regards to the mistrial. So what we have here is... Why would the court need to do that? It heard the evidence and... It is a matter of law. The court has to, based on the case law. The court has to have a finding of evidence when the court, in none of these circumstances, whenever there's an objection to improper conduct or improper questions on behalf of the Commonwealth, the court must have a finding of evidence. The court refused to have that finding of evidence in this particular matter. In addition, in terms of the defense, and the defense never has the burden of producing evidence, and in this particular matter, the Commonwealth explicitly made comments on whether or not the defense had a witness that would exonerate the defendant. And that particular word of exoneration was something that would have plagued the jury, and in fact, it was a particular word that clearly compelled the jury to believe that the defense was required to present evidence, but not only just present evidence to back up a factual claim, but evidence that ultimately would exonerate this particular individual, and that was something that was improper, and it was a matter of law that... In Robinson against Commonwealth, our Supreme Court, way back in 1936, held that where the defense elects to put on evidence, doesn't have to, but if it does, it is fair game for the Commonwealth to argue that the failure to call a particular witness to support that defense is a legitimate comment that can be made by the Commonwealth. Is that what happened here? It's not, Judge. It was a little bit more than that. So one, you have an issue where the Commonwealth stated that Mr. Green failed to call his girlfriend. The Commonwealth was aware of the evidence, was aware that Mr. Green's girlfriend was not a witness to this particular incident. In fact, that Mr. Green only saw his girlfriend at home before she went to work. After she went to work, all the activity, the alleged illegal conduct took place while the girlfriend was at work, and when she arrived home later on in the early morning hours, Mr. Green was back home. So with that being said, this witness itself could only say he was home when I left, in which Mr. Green had already stated, I was home when my girlfriend left. I was home throughout the period of time, but she didn't know where I was because she was at work. So for the Commonwealth to say that this witness had the ability to be called to, I want to say, to substantiate any of his allegations, but not only that, the Commonwealth said that this witness would somehow exonerate Mr. Williams or Mr. Green. So with that being stated, that's what takes it apart, is the fact that the Commonwealth commented on the ability of a witness not only to just present evidence that helps, but that a witness is out there that could exonerate Mr. Green. Well, let's certainly comment on what a witness could or could not say that would invite a response by you if it was made a closing argument. But I think the issue is whether there's a distinction between improper comment on the failure to put out any evidence, which would be problematic, and the ability of the Commonwealth to poke holes in a defense that is put out by a defendant. Isn't that the difference we've got here? I disagree, Judge. I do believe that the Commonwealth in this particular matter raised the bar when the Commonwealth used, again, the words exonerate. 
exonerating the defendant. I believe that within itself says that someone out there can demonstrate a case in which a witness will come in and will be able to prove to you all that this person is innocent, because that's what exoneration is, being found innocent, proving innocence. And in this particular matter, believing that this person will come in and say, as example, the DNA from the crime scene does not match Mr. Green, that would be a situation where someone was exonerated through evidence. And the Commonwealth saying that this particular witness, if they were available, implying that this witness, if they were available, would exonerate Mr. Green was highly improper. And it's that particular statement, which I believe is something that shifted the minds of the jurors at that time. Mr. McCall, can I ask you to address your argument about the robbery conviction and specifically the lack of evidence that showed, in your argument at least, that the violence here occurred before or at the time of the taking, essentially, that the Commonwealth failed to prove that the violence and the intent to steal occurred in the right order, that this wasn't essentially, as I understand your argument, it could have just been the violence happened and then after the fact they decided to take the t to TV, for example. Can you flesh that out a bit more for me, make sure I understand your argument? Yes, Your Honor, thank you. It's twofold, Your Honor. One, the Commonwealth has not, did not prove at that time that there was actually a taking. And then furthermore, whether or not this particular taking was contemporaneous with the intent to, to forcefully or with some type of intimidation perform this taking. And so in this particular matter, there was no evidence to show the time sequence in which there was a TV missing and we believe there was a cell phone missing. There was no evidence about whether or not any money was missing, any other contraband was missing, drugs or anything of that nature. But there was a TV that was missing that was only established that someone found out two days later that this television was missing. There was a cell phone missing, but there was never any evidence to state whether or not the cell phone went and how it was taken, whether it was taken from his person or in his presence of the alleged victim in this matter. So with that being said, the Commonwealth failed to establish that there was one, a taking consistent with the robbery statute and also the timing, which is intricate too, that there's no inference, no presumption that the timing has taken place. The Commonwealth must have proven that the taking and the timing of the intent was contemporaneous with the forceful and the threat of force for the taking. Isn't there evidence though that there was a struggle and there was injury at the very beginning because you see apparently answered the front door, there's blood near the front door, there's blood then all over the house where apparently he was trailed by the people who ultimately killed him. And so there's a considerable blood trail. And then he was found dead at the back of the house and the television was taken from the kitchen, which is also at the back of the house. I'm not sure I'm following your argument there. And Your Honor, in terms of the evidence, one, the evidence did not show whether or not there was a struggle that was consistent with someone being victimized or whether or not there was some type of mutual combat that was taking place inside the home. It was established through evidence that the alleged victim in this case, Mr. Swan, was a repeated drug dealer. So there was nothing to show, no evidence, no camera, no testimony to show what had occurred inside the home, whether or not there was just a garden variety fight that took place inside the home or whether or not Mr. Swan kicked out 
the person that he was fighting with, whether he fought someone and then kicked that person out, slammed the door, but he was bleeding, and some of his blood got on the door. So that inference or that presumption of timing was, one, not introduced by the Commonwealth through its evidence, and two, it couldn't be introduced. It would cause the fact finders, the jury in this particular matter, to have to take an impermissible leap an inference to say timing, to say this occurred when someone opened the door, someone was immediately assaulted when they opened the door, and there was some type of, I want to say, abduction-style home invasion that took place when that was not the evidence. There was no broken latch on the door. There was nothing to show any type of force for well, entry. Well, in the light most to, following up on Judge Beale's question, the light most favorable to the Commonwealth, there was evidence that uh, there had been, for lack of a better word, a search, a disruption of the room. That the, and I hear the victim, of course, is deceased, mm -hmm. so he didn't testify. So to the extent there's evidence of a robbery, it's circumstantial evidence, which is why if it removes every hypothesis consistent with innocence. So we have no question the use of force. I understand your argument about the identity of your client as the perpetrator, but setting that aside, whoever the perpetrator was, there's evidence from the blood trail that Judge Beals alluded to. The pocket of the victim was turned inside out and his cell phone was missing. It seems to be a reasonable conclusion from it that a fact finder could draw, doesn't have to, but inferentially could, it, it pretty clearly did here, is that the, something was, the cell phone was removed from the pocket that was missing. In addition, there was a TV set missing from the room where the force was applied. It's true you cannot rob a dead person typically, but why is it from the standpoint of our standard review of circumstantial evidence, all of that constituting re reasonable inferences that a fact finder could draw? There was a reasonable hypothesis and innocence of a, a drug deal that had gone on inside the home and a couple of uh, remarks also. There was no evidence of where any type of force had taken place, whether it was in the living room, whether or not it was in the kitchen. There was no evidence about the force and there was no evidence about... The, blood is the, it, it, the evidence of blood force trauma is not evidence of force? No evidence of force of where it took place at within the vicinity of the crime scene. There was no evidence of where the, someone was struck, was someone struck in a bedroom, a living room, a kitchen, or what have you. There was no evidence of that. In addition, there was no evidence of the state of the home prior to police arriving to the scene, whether or not some of the dresser drawers were taken out, whether or not some of the mattresses had been flipped over, what was the state of this particular home at the time prior to... very quickly about the perpetrator, because you argue we don't know who the perpetrator is, but we've got cell phone data that placed Mr. Green at the crime scene by cell phone. We've got his inconsistent statements at trial and to Detective Bates. And we've got the fact that Dwayne's cell phone, he knew that Dwayne's cell phone was thrown into the woods, which was found near his car where he went to after this. So when you look at all of that, why, how can we say on appeal that no rational fact finder could have found that Mr. Green was the perpetrator here? In order for a rational fact finder to find that Mr. Green were the perpetrator outside of any, any improper comments from the Commonwealth, uh, would have to line up for circumstantial evidence all the links 
to the chain would have to connect. And in this particular matter that was before the court and trial, one, there was no communication between Mr. Green and the other parties, no communication between Mr. Green and the victim in this particular matter. A cell phone was in the area, not Mr. Green was in the area by way of evidence. Um, there was no one to testify that they saw Mr. Green in the area, around the area. There was just a cell phone in which Mr. Green testified, reasonable hypothesis of innocence, that his the person that was the co-defendant had used his phone as far as just because he testified to it doesn't make it with that being stated still a reasonable hypothesis of innocence that has to be considered by the jury at the time that but also considered it and rejected it and inferentially did exactly that but and also to even consider that reject that they still have to have all of the chains and that link to establish the activity in which the Commonwealth presented and no reasonable rational juror could say that yes this all occurred this person was responsible for this robbery and this person was the perpetrator okay your time has expired Mr. Recall but we'll give you uh, one minute when you come up for rebuttal just because we had a lot of questions for you thank you it looks like I might have thir I thought I had 13 seconds on here the other way unfortunately <laughs> Good morning. May it please the court. Mason Williams representing the Commonwealth of Virginia. Your Honor, this court should affirm the defendant's convictions for robbery and conspiracy to commit robbery because the evidence was sufficient and the remaining arguments that the defendant makes are without merit. Turning first to the <coughs> excuse me, sufficiency of the evidence, it bears repeating in a case like this the standard of review on appeal. Again, this court, and we do not reweigh the evidence. We have the case come before us on a cold record. We're not able to, to see the witnesses that testify, not able to hear and listen to all the evidence, and there's no, really no principled way for this court to reweigh re the evidence. And, um, because of that, all this court does on appeal is just make sure there is some evidence in the record which supports the fact finder's uh, finding, and it does, and we look at, the, we allow fact finders to draw reasonable inferences basic to ultimate facts and these fact finders in doing so can rely on common knowledge and experience. So viewed the evidence here at trial clearly allowed the jury to find the defendant guilty of the robbery here. As this court has noted, but going through again, there's the evidence of the blood in the entryway here, allowed the inference that the victim was attacked as he opened the door or soon thereafter. The blood trail led throughout the house, paused at the couch for a bit. There was testimony that he likely paused there, went through the kitchen to the back of the house, and then he was found dead, of course, on the porch outside. As he was, his body was found, the pocket outturned, cell phone was missing, cell phone was found outside the defendant's apartment, perpendicular to the defendant's car. Is there any um, evidence in the record that the intent to steal arose before the application of force here? versus the force happens and then the cell phone's taken and then the TV's taken. And I'm open to the fact that may not have been an argument that's really been preserved here. So you can address any of those things. Yeah, sure. And that, that was going to be my first point is, is that has not really been raised on appeal or, or in the trial court, uh, of course, has to be preserved and raised here. The defendant's uh, arguments as I read them are that the, regarding that the violence was not before at the time of the taking. He doesn't challenge when the intent to steal has been raised. So that would be my first response to Your Honor, would that be, would be that he has not raised that. But on the merits, I think the intent 
with which actions are taken can be shown by the facts themselves. And here, obviously, the TV and the cell phone are missing, and so a reasonable fact finder could infer from that fact that the purpose that the entry was made for was to, A, maybe commit this murder. Again, multiple intents can be present at the same time, commit this murder, but also commit the theft here. And we have, again, these missing items. We have the defendant's, or excuse me, the victim's bedroom. The armoire is left open. The drawers are left open. There's nothing in them. Viewing all this circumstantial evidence, we can, a, a reasonable fact finder certainly could conclude that the intent here was, at least in part, to commit a theft. Um, Mr. Mr. Williams, isn't it true that the law is basically there needs to be a nexus between the application of force and the taking of personal property? In other words, it doesn't necessarily have to precede the take. For, hypothetically, for example, so, someone could say, give me your cell phone, and you take the cell phone, and the person tries to recover their phone, and you apply force to, to keep possession of their property. That, that's still robbery, is it not? Yes, Your Honor. Yes, and I think, again, from the circumstances we have here, that's clearly a very violent scene. There's the evidence of the T-shaped laceration on the back of the victim's head here. He's bled throughout the house. He's found executed on the back steps. Clearly, the violent, I think a reasonable fact finder could infer that the violence was ongoing throughout this whole encounter, and thus that any theft that occurred would have happened, A, after the violence, but was concomitant with this overall scheme to break into this, to enter this house and steal and perhaps commit other crimes while we were there, including this Given homicide. Given where his body was found on that back porch or deck, and the fact that the kitchen is at the back of the house, is that correct? Am I understanding That's correct, Your Honor. I believe the kitchen, the back door is, the kitchen leads the into kitchen. the back door, yes. His body's found outside, the television is taken from the kitchen, and the cell phone, presumably from where his pocket was turned inside out. Am I... Yeah, yes, Your Honor. Is yes. that correct? Yes, Your Honor. Again, there's no, there's blood all over the defendant's hands, no blood on the outturned pocket, allowing a reasonable fact finder to infer that, that the robbers removed the phone from his person. Uh, and, and that it started somewhere around the front door. Yes, Your Honor, again, because that's where the blood started, was at this entryway, and there was evidence, again, that the, these three co-conspirators had been contacting each other all night, but also that McNeil had contacted the defendant right before the murder. They went to this house, gained entry, and carried out whatever happened. Again, we don't have to have all of the facts, and certainly there are some, some things that are unclear in this case, but again, that's not the question on appeal. The question is if the circumstances that was shown allowed a reasonable fact finder to infer that, that the robbery occurred Green here. Green claims not to, at least at certain points, his claim not to know the people who were calling him over that's and over during the hours leading up to this. That's correct, Your Honor. The, he testified in his, his reasonable hypothesis of innocence that he, he proffered was that he loaned his car and his phone to Jones, one of the other co-conspirators. But the, as Judge Humphreys noted, the, the fact finder here discounted that reasonable hypothesis of innocence and, and reasonably did so based on his, his conflicting statements to police, the fact that, that uh, I believe McNeil called both the defendant's phone and Jones' phone in quick succession, which, again, wouldn't really make sense if, if Jones was using the defendant's phone. So the, the uh, fact finder here could have reasonably uh, discounted that, that proffered hypothesis of innocence. For the same reason, the only argument he really raises regarding conspiracy is identity. 
and identity, in other words, that he wasn't there because he loaned Jones his car and his phone. And so for the same reasons I've just mentioned, there was evidence to allow a reasonable fact finder to conclude that he was present. And again, the evidence showed that these co-conspirators had been contacting each other all throughout the night, that they converged at this point, all went to this victim's house, left and met up later, allowing a reasonable fact finder to conclude that there was this common scheme, plan, agreement to commit these crimes. If the court has no further questions about the sufficiency... Why does the Commonwealth argue that um, Green filed his speedy trial motion too late? It's not timely. Why does the Commonwealth argue that? I I understand that argument. I believe the argument was that the hearing was not held and the statutorily prescribed three days before trial. He did file the pro se speedy trial motion, and I believe that that was was timely. A a month before the trial, wasn't it? Yes, Your Honor, but no hearing was ever held until it was raised the day of trial, and and the trial court denied it for that reason, but also on on the merits. Well, that presents a little bit of a complication because typically when you're represented by counsel, which, which he was, it's the attorney who's charged with making those sorts of decisions. Now, the attorney here adopted the motion of, as I understand it, of a day of trial. The soonest, assuming the original filing pro se was effectively a nullity, the soonest a hearing would have been appropriate would have been after the counsel adopted the motion, correct? That's correct, Your Honor. And again, as, as I mentioned, the, the trial court found not only that the hearing was, or the motion was untimely, and the hearing was not held, but also that it was wholly without merit, a uh, finding that has not been challenged on appeal, and which is sufficient in and of itself to, to affirm. I'm happy to discuss any of the, the remaining arguments that have been made, but if, if the court has no questions on those, I would rest in my brief. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Mr. Williams. McCall, you'll have one minute for your rebuttal. Thank you. Brief rebuttal. In terms of the preservation of the issue in regards to the robbery and the intent that was preserved in the appellate's analysis, the principal elements of a robbery of crime against a person, the taking, the intent to steal, and the violence. There's a temporal correlation among the elements. The violence must be before or at the time of the taking. The intent to steal and the taking must coexist. Um, at that particular point, the appellate did preserve that issue of the timing of the taking uh, and the intent to steal. And that was something that was not proven by the, the Commonwealth in this particular case. In addition, our defense did adopt the speedy trial argument, speedy trial pro se motion. The court, and it's clear from the statute, plain meaning, there must be a hearing within three days of the trial unless that is specifically waived. That was not waived. There was no hearing allowed. And that would be the appellant's argument on that. And we ask that the rest of our arguments be preserved and implied by way of our brief also to include the the punishment for the reenacted robbery statute on 18.258 and whether or not it was retroactive. Thank you. The case is now submitted. We'll come down to Greek Council. The proceeding has been a production of Ben Glass Law, a Fairfax, Virginia-based personal injury and long-term disability law firm. For a free evaluation of your claim, visit us at benglasslaw.com or call us at 703-591-9829.